Yesterday morning was Saturday, and uh, I was sat having breakfast in our lounge. Jane was at work, I was on my own. Our kids were either not there or still in bed. And um, there was a book, it was this book, that had randomly appeared on our coffee table. And I'm just sitting there eating my bowl of cereal, caught my eye. Um, I think it was left there by one of our kids who were all cleverer than me. Um, because it's a copy of Homer's The Iliad. Uh, that's not a reference to The Simpsons. Um, on the back here, it says that this ancient Greek epic about the Trojan Wars and the ancient city of Troy is one of the oldest and greatest and most influential pieces of literature in the, ever written. But it was another comment on the back that really struck me while I was eating my Alpen. Listen to this. This is the publisher's blurb on the back. With compassion and humanity, Homer presents a universal and tragic view of the world, of human life, lived under the shadow of suffering and death, set against a vast and largely unpitying divine background. It's a cheerful breakfast. In other words, life is hard and the gods, wherever they are, don't care. That, that's the publisher's blurb. Living under the shadow of suffering and death in a world where God doesn't care. Now, this was only yesterday, and I'd already prepared my talk for this afternoon. But Homer's notion in that book that we all basically struggle while God looks the other way perfectly captures the exact opposite of what I wanted to preach to you today. <laughs> Thankfully, we're not stu studying uh, the works of Homer. Better not leave that there. We are continuing our studies in the Gospel of Matthew, as you know. And, and it's a Gospel in which Matthew never denies the reality of suffering and or death, but he does point us beyond it to the God he discovered and who does care far more than we could possibly imagine. We actually reached a huge turning point in our reading today. Um, the final week of Jesus' life is coming to a close. This is now the beginning of the end. All of the healing miracles are done. All of the public debates and discussions and the parables we've been looking at recently are all finished. And Jesus himself now turns his disciples' thoughts to his own imminent death. Look at verse 1. It'd be great if you have a Bible to keep your finger in the page here. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. 
and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. We've got a lot to cover today. We're going to look at three separate scenes in the first half of this chapter this afternoon. There are two meals indoors and then an agonising third scene outdoors in the garden of olive trees called Gethsemane. But we should be clear at the very beginning that it, that it is the dark shadow of the cross that hangs heavy over all these three scenes here. We've seen the cross loom into view already there in verse 1 in Jesus' bleak prediction. Jesus is about to be handed over to be crucified. But look with me at some of the other verses here. In verse 12, Jesus speaks about his own imminent burial. In verse 18, as Jesus plans this Passover meal, the Last Supper, he, he speaks about his appointed time being near. We could go to verse 26 and the establishment of what we call communion, where Jesus knows that his body is about to be brutally broken and his blood is about to be poured out. Look at verse 31, where Jesus references an ancient prophecy that speaks of him as the shepherd who's about to be fatally struck down, causing the sheep to scatter. And later in the garden scene, verse 38, even the anticipation of the sorrows that lie ahead feels like it's enough to crush and kill him on their own. Before we get into these scenes, though, I want you to notice the delicious irony in the little transition section in verses 1 to 5. Even as Jesus predicts and anticipates his own imminent crucifixion, the religious leaders are gathering together in a council of hate and conspiring to kill him. Jesus predicts his death at the exact moment that his enemies are plotting unwittingly to kill him. There is, is, it's a contrast, isn't it? There's a, there's a delicious irony in the fact that they're busy assuming that they control their malicious diaries while Jesus is calmly moving towards the cross according to his own timetable time and timescales. I'm reminded of Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. I put the words or some of them on the screen here. Psalm 2 begins with this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. <laughs> and what does God do? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. It's not, it's not a laugh of making fun. 
In other words, the murderous human plotting is truly awful, but it doesn't unsettle or surprise God in the slightest, despite the apparent havoc raging here. Jesus is totally and masterfully in control. I think from this point on, Matthew's narrative to me seems to slow down as he introduces us to a diverse range of interesting characters. And we'll see these various complex people scheming and arguing and crying. We'll feel their fear and greed and see their weary shock. Some of them are filled with a kind of bewildered love and others are consumed with violent hate. And yet, in the person of Jesus, God is not uncaringly absent, but he is right here in the middle of this, with his sleeves rolled up, experiencing all of it. I have four headings uh, this afternoon to help us, and I, I kind of want to say that it's the blend of them that, that, that I find so interesting. All of these things are happening at the same time. And, and I, as I've been reflecting on this chapter, it seems to me that as Matthew records these real historic human incidents, he, he's kind of also painting a, a picture of the kind of crazy things that seem to go on in our world somewhere all the time. The shadow of the cross also looms large over all the comings and goings and joys and sorrows and hopes and fears that we ourselves also experience in our lives. What, what I mean to say is, don't be surprised when stuff happens and conclude like Homer that God has no pity. But instead, know that Jesus and his cross still now tower majestically over the ruins of our messy human chaos and shout to us that God does indeed love us in spite of ourselves and that he calls us to love him above all. Well, let's see the blend of these four four scenes, if, if you like, or four things that Matthew paints for us in these three scenes. And the first is this. This is 6 to 13. I've called this extravagant devotion. The first scene is a dinner in the village of Bethany, which is a couple of miles outside Jerusalem. And we're told that it's at the home of a man called Simon. But notice that Simon calls this host Simon the leper. We shouldn't miss that. If you were a leper, you were an outcast, but this man's hosting a dinner. That means that he's been healed by Jesus. And he's now living in his own house rather than a social outcast. We also know that Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, also live in Bethany. And John tells us in his gospel 
that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they were all there at this dinner in the village where they lived. This is a dinner being held in Jesus' honour. This is a happy meal where grateful people are celebrating what Jesus has done for them in order to honour him. But one woman, John tells us actually that it is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, decides to honour Jesus in the most extravagant way. Special jars like the one she uses here were made from alabaster. The perfume was called nard, probably from India. This kind of thing could even be a family heirloom passed on through the generations and it would cost something like a year's wages. So this is no small thing. And releasing the perfume was a one-time thing. The user would literally snap the neck and release the perfume all in one go. And the exotic, rich aroma would fill the whole house. Can you smell it? There's almost a hint here of her anointing Jesus like a king would be anointed as she pours this expensive perfume on the head of Jesus as he reclines at the table. She doesn't care what it costs. Her love for Jesus here seems to literally overflow. You wonder whether she has ever been as happy or as sure about anything as she is in this moment. There are no words, but this explosion of spontaneous, extravagant devotion I love you, Jesus, and I don't care what it costs. You are so utterly worthy of the very best that I can give. Hers is a love with no limits at all. And yet, in this moment of joyful adoration, she begins to hear whispers of criticism that suddenly darken the mood. Isn't it horrible to so unselfconsciously give of yourself and then suddenly discover that you've been totally misunderstood and told off? (laughs) And isn't it striking here that it's the men who are also very practical, but also so very angry with this woman. What are you doing? <laughs> you can hear them, can't you? What on earth are you doing? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. What on earth are you thinking to waste this precious heirloom so recklessly? I think the disciples, they they seem to set up, to me, such a false contrast here, don't they? Loving Jesus or helping the poor. It's, you, you know, I hope, 
that we, we must never set up practical acts of service against proper inward heart devotion to Jesus. Surely the truth is that our practical generosity should, flow, should be the overflow of this kind of loving devotion to Christ. One old writer asks us to imagine, imagine this, imagine if this devoted and enthusiastic woman had waited for the advice of these prudent men. She would neither have sold the ointment or poured it out. I, I love that. If she'd, if, she'd, if she'd asked their advice first, they'd have done neither. It has still sat in the wardrobe. She did well to take counsel with her own loving heart and then to pour the precious nod upon that dear head which was so soon to be crowned with thorns. She thus showed that there was at least one heart, one heart in the world that thought nothing was too good for her Lord and that the best of the best ought to be given to him. And this writer says, may she have many imitators in every age until Jesus comes again. In verse 11, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus is not saying there because, he's, he's not saying that because there will always be poor people, we should ignore them. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite, actually. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, if you want the reference, it is precisely because there are always poor ones that we should strive to be always open-handedly generous. And don't forget, Jesus himself was poor. He loved the poor. He preached to and healed the poor. What the disciples failed to see was that no one else would ever get the chance to show such love at such cost to such a saviour as in this precious moment. And so in verse 10, Jesus shuts her critics up and gives Mary permission to be extravagant. Leave her alone. Jesus says, get off her case. She has done a beautiful thing here today. And in verse 13 there, Jesus even immortalizes her extravagant devotion forever. And here we are talking about it 2,000 years later. It's hard to know whether Mary totally understands the significance but the shadow of the cross certainly hangs over this scene because Jesus himself interprets it as a preparation for his approaching death and burial 
Isn't it poignant that it's in this moment it seems precious to Jesus to experience such kindness and devotion prior to the pain ahead? Extravagant devotion. Secondly, Matthew seems next to make a deliberate contrast between a love that knows no limits and an evil that seems to know no limits or depths. Judas has to be one of the darkest characters or figures in all of history, doesn't he? Um, The woman here is thinking about what can I give to Jesus? And Judas is thinking only about what he can get out of following Jesus. When Judas rushes off to see the chief priests in verse 14, he can't even bring himself to use Jesus' name. Uh, And I didn't know this, but apparently the price they agree is apparently insultingly small. Um, Who knows what Judas' motives were here? Was it money? In John's Gospel, we learned that Judas was the treasurer for the group. And John tells us that he had his hands in the money bag all the time. (laughs) He was actually the one in John's Gospel who started the grumbling about this perfume being used. Um, But the 30 pieces of silver seems low if he's motivated by greed. So other writers have wondered, too, whether Judas is massively frustrated that Jesus has not turned out to be what he wanted him to be. Maybe we can relate to this, I don't know. Why why was Jesus not smashing the Romans? And Judas is like, why did he keep preaching humility and forgiveness and servanthood instead of doing something strong and powerful to sort things out? Does Jesus not realise how much people are suffering because of these Romans? And how can Jesus ride into the city as a king and now be talking about being crucified at the crucial moment when radical action is needed? It sounds like a defeat rather than a victory. And maybe Judas is thinking, who wants to be on the losing team? All this talk of suffering and death and self-denial is ridiculous. Being with Jesus sounded like it was going to cost too much. Did Judas think that by betraying Jesus, he was somehow going to force Jesus to change his approach and do something more king-like? But notice too, that although this is a shattering shock to the disciples, it's no surprise to Jesus. It's interesting, in verse 17, Jesus sends two disciples off to make preparations for the Last Supper. Jesus clearly still has things to say to them. We'll come on to that. But you wonder whether Jesus sends these two off to make plans so that the location is kept secret so that while Jesus is having the meal with his disciples, Judas doesn't show up with soldiers 
to interrupt them before Jesus has said what he wants to say. But during the actual meal then, in verse 21, Jesus drops the bombshell on them that one of them will betray him. I, I love the humility and the fear of all the others in verse 22. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. It's a good thing, isn't it, to have some kind of fear. Surely not I, Lord. But do you know what the really tragic thing is? It is that none of them even remotely suspect Judas. No one said, is it Judas, Lord? I've had a funny feeling about him the whole time. After three years, they couldn't tell that he was a traitor. He was one of them, and yet, the whole time, he wasn't one of them. I I don't know if we can explain it. It is totally shocking. And the stinging, awesome words of Jesus here to Judas in verse 24 are so utterly sobering it would have been better for him if he hadn't been born isn't the contrast so striking under the shadow of an impending cross one woman Mary could gladly give her absolute best while a traitor like Judas is simultaneously doing his absolute worst. Matthew draws us next into what we call the Last Supper. And from verse 26, I think the major theme here is hope. I I think this scene would have been a total surprise to Homer. Um, To see such unconquerable, rock-solid, granite-like hope for disciples who are all about to fail and fall apart and run away. Let me highlight two things. And the, the first is, is this. Jesus, he, he's basically telling them that he's going to die as a substitute to rescue them. It's very significant, isn't it, that Jesus here wants to celebrate the Jewish Passover feast with his disciples. He's very keen to do so. They'll have done this before. It's an annual thing. And this was the great festival of freedom. Every year, Jews would remember their origins. How God heard their cries when they were slaves in Egypt and rescued them from tyranny and brought them out of Egypt and formed them into a nation, his beloved people. And during this Passover meal that they will have eaten here, they would have taken bitter herbs to remind them of the pain of their slavery 
They would have eaten unleavened or unrisen bread, which signified their quick escape, didn't have time to rise. Um, they, they would have eaten roasted sacrificial lamb that symbolised the bloodshed to save their firstborn. And the disciples would have known this meal inside out. They knew this so well. But on this occasion, when the meal's finished, Jesus uses leftovers to give them a new reason to celebrate. Jesus reinterprets the ancient festival of freedom because there's a greater slavery than the ones their ancestors had experienced in Egypt centuries before. And, and it's our slavery to sin and selfishness and death and hell. This is a far greater tyranny. And Jesus here comes in love to smash these tyrants, these slave masters, and set them and us free forever. So in verse 26, Jesus takes some leftover unleavened bread and he gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he passes it around and says to them, take and eat, this is my body. And then he takes a cup of wine that's left over and he gives thanks again and he passes the cup around the group saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you know that there's nothing literal about that. Jesus, in fact, is still sitting there in his own body with his warm blood still flowing in his veins. What he's doing is sharing them what his sacrificial death will mean for them. His death is not a sad accident. He is deliberately and willingly going to the cross to die for them. And as their innocent king, he will suffer and die in their place to take away their guilt forever. The end of verse 29 is incredible, where Jesus says, I I'm not going to drink wine again until the day I drink it with you, with you in my Father's kingdom. This means that whenever the followers of Jesus share this communion meal, they are looking back to the agonizing cross, which enables them to enjoy present forgiveness, but they're also looking forward to a great day of joyful reunion. I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you then. They're all about to run away. And Jesus sees past their failure to that day of joyful reunion. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus will also rise as Lord to gather them back together. In verse 31, Jesus predicts they're falling away. On this very night, you will all fall away on account of me, Jesus says. 
when the shepherd is fatally struck, all the sheep will scatter. And despite their protests, when Jesus is arrested, their courage will fail and they will all totally abandon him. Actually, in verse 35, uh, Peter contradicts Jesus to his face. And all the others said the same. They meant it, but when it came to the crunch, they all turned out to be cowards rather than heroes. And yet, look at what Jesus promises them in verse 32. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That's where they'd first met, by the way. So that's very significant. Some of these guys are fishermen on Lake Galilee. It's where he called them, follow me. After I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee, where we first met. Notice how Jesus approaches his own death in the confidence that after it, he'll powerfully rise. After I've risen. Their failure, in other words, on this evening will not be fatal. Their scattering will not be the end of their story. Jesus is saying to them, you may abandon me now, but I will never, ever leave you. After I have risen, I will come to you again with power and with a smile. And I will gather you all up into my love and care once more. Your failure cannot stop me loving you. This is the moment where the faithful love of Jesus meets them in their weakness and abject failure. Their sin doesn't repulse him. He knows them better than they even know themselves. And he loves them. He's come for them. He, he's, he's even come to die for them. Do you see how the very foundation of and hope of the church is not us but him? You see that? It is, it's God's kindness and grace. So often in this world, I'm sure you would agree, great movements have been begun by heroes who overcome all the odds with their skillful determination. But this movement, I, I think this is why this rings so true, this movement begins with a bunch of people who ran away. Stumbling and falling and yet being loved and rescued and gathered by Jesus. What that means is that the DNA of their group from day one is humility, isn't it? They've got nothing to brag about apart from Jesus. <laughs> their DNA is humble gratitude to Jesus and a reliance together on the love and faithfulness and power of God. Finally, fourthly, let's turn to the Garden of Gethsemane. And let's see something here of the anguish 
of the Lord Jesus. Here's the thing. There's so much in this passage, as we've already seen, that tells us that Jesus knew all along where he was going. But we might perhaps expect him as the mighty God to somehow breeze through it, you know? I mean... And then we discover that Jesus is not some kind of unfeeling robot. The fact that he knew where he was going did not make him immune to feeling the weight of it when the moment finally comes. It feels as if the ground is literally giving way under his trembling feet. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And yet he faces it all alone. He so wanted his closest friends to be with him. Luke in his gospel tells us that they were all worn out with sorrow. We spoke about Homer and his idea that we humans suffer while God is unsympathetic. But actually we discover here that the opposite is true, don't we? Actually, it is God who suffers agony while the humans sleep. And it's not so much the food or the wine or even the lateness of the hour. They are overwhelmed. Jesus was always the strong one. Nothing ever unbalanced him. He was always ready with the right words. And yet here he seems completely broken and utterly distraught. They'd never seen him like this. And in their weakness, they weren't able to help him. Three times Jesus goes off to pray. And three times they fall asleep. The first time Jesus gently rebukes them. Verse 40, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? The second time, he seems to leave them sleeping. And the third time, Jesus rises to face his enemies with calm determination, stunning courage, and breathtaking humility. Surely, there was never anyone who so fully felt the horror of something and yet so willingly faced that horror he, he wasn't going into it with his eyes closed. He felt it and he faced it. And there's something here, isn't there, in Jesus that makes him vulnerable and strong 
at the same time, there's a submissiveness. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus says. There's a softness and a sensitivity, and yet such a strength and courage and resolve. Jesus somehow has a framework or a perspective that seems to put willing tenderness and courageous steel, willing tenderness in his heart and courageous steel in his back at the same time. And it's such a contrast, isn't it, to the spirit of our age? We tend to think that any kind of submission to anything outside of ourselves is weakness. And don't we all get entitled about what we do and don't deserve? And Jesus here, he's not embittered or brittle or hard. He willingly embraces his task and walks majestically to the cross. And surely the only way that Jesus can do that is because his life has a bigger purpose than simply his own comfort, his own safety. Jesus, in, in Jesus, God is glorified, love and mercy triumph, and sinners like us can be saved. What a, what a king and saviour Jesus is. What Matthew gives us here as we close is, is a tremendous historic account of the passion of Christ. And what a blend of human reactions we see under the shadow of his cross here. Matthew describes her as leaders who plot their own self-interest and fail to do justice. Do we know what that looks like? There are those like Judas who appear to be disciples and yet are secretly despising him in their hearts. There are those who truly do love Jesus but are so often weak and fearful. The shadow of the cross looms over it all and reveals such an invincible hope because Jesus endured such indescribable anguish. Matthew powerfully paints this combination of human weakness and human awfulness and the concrete faithfulness of God for his beloved people. Unlike Homer, Matthew invites us to see that while, yes, life can be and often is hard, God is not absent or distant. In the person of Jesus, he has come near and he has borne our sins. The cross of Jesus has conquered a world gone wrong. Will you allow it to conquer you? Matthew gives every generation of his readers of his gospel all down the years this vision of what following Jesus looks like in a world like this.
the cross of Jesus transcends destructive human scheming and calls every one of us to patiently trust him and to willingly love him above all things until he comes again. Let's pray. And then we'll sing. Father, we surely are standing on holy ground when we read and reflect upon chapters like this. We find it hard to fully plumb the depths of the passion of the Lord Jesus in this, the final few days of his life. And we recognize all of the different human reactions that go on here. Father, we pray that as we drink deeply of this picture that Matthew paints for us, as we see something of the beauty and courage of Jesus, that you will help us to trust him and to love him and more to be like him. We pray that you would put the same softness and courage into our hearts and lives. Help us to walk with him in this valley of the shadow of death. May the shadow of his cross loom large over our lives. May you help us not to draw wrong conclusions when things go wrong. Help us to be patient. Help us to trust in your love and your kindness and your grace and to live in the light of your forgiveness to us as sinners. Bless us, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus, your Son, our Saviour. Amen.